Welcome to the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up for the week of 24 May 2020, the month that time forgot. I mean, it's almost over, so, you know, who knows. Show news, 5G quantum oscillation dampening, yeah. Ragnar, Windows Hello, Facebook, and FISA, all this and more on the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. We interrupt our program to bring you this important It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. As technology continues to evolve and expand, so have the countless ways our critical systems can be put in jeopardy. Ransomware attacks, misconfiguration, user error, and malicious threat actors, to name a few. As IT infrastructures continue to grow and diversify, how do you ensure stable security? Core Security, a help systems company, provides an analytics-driven, layered approach to security with a portfolio that enables both proactive and reactive responses. With Core Security, you can reduce risk by limiting access, detect upcoming and active threats, test for security weaknesses, and efficiently monitor data for actionable insights. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash core security. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. All right, I'm Doug White, uh, your host, and welcome to the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up Show. Uh, so let's just wrap up all the show topics this week, but uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Security Weekly Discord server so you can chat with the host, the guest, and others during the live shows or whenever you like. It's free, and there is a link in the wiki, so you can check it out. It's a lot of fun, and uh, it's especially fun during, like, uh, Paul Security Weekly and so forth because a lot of us are on there, and everybody has an interesting conversation that is a counterpoint to the conversation going on in the show. So it, it's actually pretty fun. Um, on Application Security Weekly uh, this week, uh, well, uh, they didn't have a show, so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that one was not recorded, and I still have I still keep them all in my notes because we have lots and lots of shows, so we try to keep up uh, with all the different shows that are going on. And uh, we had several that didn't record uh, this particular week, so uh, I still had some uh, text in my copy that I and I wrote the copy during Security Weekly last night, so it may be a little squirrely. Who knows what what may actually go on? But you know, we'll get through it. It'll be okay. Uh, I'm just gonna wait it out. You know, it's just like. It'll, it'll get there in a minute, and we'll, we'll talk about the next one. I forgot to clear this off, sorry. Um, but we'll get there. On Business Security Weekly number 175, Paul, Jason, and Matt, they didn't record it. <laughs> That's always fun. On Enterprise Security Weekly number 185, John, Matt, and Paul had an interview with Adam Bosnian, the Executive Vice President of Global Business Development at CyberArk. Uh, this segment was about the real value of identity in a multi-vendor IT environment. 
And they had a second interview with Zach Moody, the head of global cybersecurity and privacy at AVX. And that segment was about security leadership, accountability in security leadership, and enforcing buy-in from the top. That's one of the most difficult things to get uh, for years and years and years. So many of us were preaching about security and trying to get security. A lot of you have heard me tell stories about when I first uh, did a pen test and almost got fired, being told, don't ever do this again. Uh, you know, revealing our weaknesses is, is just terrible. Uh, on the Security Weekly News number 35, uh, actually th it was 37, uh, on 37, Jason would join me with expert commentary on eBay running port scans of a local host when you use, well, eBay via JavaScript. Um, I think we probably could have done a whole show dedicated to the ethics around this. And uh, I mean, I don't know if it's really an ethics issue or not, but it is definitely something worth uh, thinking about a little bit. Uh, going forward, you're probably going to see more of this. If somebody's doing it, other people are going to start doing it. And I actually have the news story uh, in the wiki as well. I was going to bring that one up uh, later. On Security, Compli Security and Compliance Weekly number 30, uh, Jeff, Matt, Josh, and Scott had no report, so they didn't record either. Uh, it was, you know, it's like a holiday week in the United States, so a lot of people were uh, doing other things, especially given uh, the current state of affairs. However, on Paul's Security Weekly last night where everyone was drinking and I was uh, drinking and writing uh, show notes, uh, that was episode uh, 653. I keep seeing that big giant number and I go, wow, that is amazing how long that show's been on the air. Uh, first up was an interview with Greg Foss uh, about the MITRE attack framework and malware trends. Greg is a senior threat researcher at VMware Carbon Black. Uh, I really like MITRE ATT&CK uh, and as a way to visualize what something is doing. And it, it really, uh, one of the ways I've used MITRE ATT&CK was to explain to other people what was going on. So people were asking about attacks like, and again, this was a, we saw that other story about uh, convincing the top management. And it's nice to be able to show people something and how it works. And MITRE ATT&CK is sort of a pre-built version of that that is really, really handy. It, I mean, among many, many other things that it can do. Uh, a second interview uh, with Peter Singer, the author of Burn In, a novel of uh, real, the real robotics revolution at New America, which is a techno thriller. Uh, the novel has a lot of real trends and predictions and facts in it. So maybe the next Neuromancer. Uh, I, I know that... Uh, uh, they were talking about uh, William Gibson occasionally on there. Uh, it was a really, it was a pre-recorded segment. It was really well worth watching. Uh, Peter is a strategist at New America, and he's one of the Smithsonian's 100 leading innovators. He's also like the top 100 of just about everything on Earth. So it was definitely worth uh, going back and listening to that if you missed it last night. Uh, during the news segment, uh, the immortal Ed Scotus from Sands uh, joined in. Uh, that's always worth a listen, and if you don't know Ed, well, you, you've really been missing out. He's a, a, been a, a regular guest on Security Weekly for years and is always just such a, a great instructor and, and just a great person in general and gives back to the community. I mean, can you say holiday hack? I mean, surely you can, but all that, you know, with the news. So uh, a really fun show last night, uh, and, and I finished off my bottle of Paul Bow uh, during the show, so... Uh, if you like cognac, I, I recommend it for drinking during the shows or, or rainstorms or, or rainstorms that are going on during shows. Um, and in fact, I, I was thinking last night during the show, I, was, I had that bottle and I was, there's this place called, it's called the Humble Administrator's Garden. 
in Suzhou, China, and they have this big open pavilion that's called something like the the I could not remember what it was called. It was something like the the, the Chamber of Rain or something like that. And it's a really cool place to to drink uh, cognac on a rainy evening if you've ever had that opportunity. My favorite threat of the week is going to have to be your contact tracing apps. So every, everyone out there right now from kindergartens to major corporations are trying to figure out how to reopen and how to do contact tracing, which is very likely going to be a critical component of getting restarted in person. Uh, in the United States, uh, some of the states are likely going to require some sort of contact tracing in place just to be able to restart at all this summer. So well, what that means is that everyone, you know, schools and so forth, are scrambling to produce the next great app uh, that would could be a significant product in the next two years if you have that particular app. Uh, I think currently on this, we're in the shakeout period of these apps. Uh, they're springing up uh, like dandelions. And pretty soon, you're going to have a lot of different apps, and people are going to start picking apps that they're going to use. The state of Rhode Island adopted something called cr uh, Crushing COVID. Uh, there are free ones on GitHub. There are commercial ones being developed by various companies, and they're going to get attacked. I mean, whether it's just people being malicious or it's people trying to take advantage of them in some way, those contact tracing apps are going to be a, a target both for fishers uh, and so forth. And I, I've had several calls in the last couple of weeks asking for opinions about these various tools, which I really haven't had a chance to sit down and review. And they're a little difficult to, to test because of the, the nature of them, that they're running on mobile devices and you really need a, a sort of a group of testers to run them. Um, some of them are very basic and they don't have hardly any data stored anywhere. Like Apple and Google keep promising that there's going to be no data stored with them. It's just going to be on the local phone and it's just going to be a self-reporting kind of app. But it could also be a large-scale tracking system and all these things are going to tie together, right? So, I mean, eventually the contact tracing apps are going to be tied into some kind of back-end management system. And all that turns into HIPAA, which in the United States, if you don't know, is a healthcare requirement for confidentiality and so forth that applies to healthcare. And this is considered HIPAA. Uh, other countries have GDPR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So who built the app? What does it do? What permissions does it have on the device? Where's the data stored? Uh, who or what? Who and what has access to the data, and what happens to the data in the future, combined with all of the targeting likely to emerge to get people to, you know, give up data, to give up credentials, and so forth, is going to be a large question that your organization and likely you as security professionals are going to have to answer, and you're going to end up having to answer it very, very quickly because as these states move to allow people to reopen and then and then turn around and change the rules or say what the rules are going to create a huge threat surface to your organization. So, you know, this is to me a very big threat that's probably going to persist as a big threat surface for the foreseeable future. And now the news. So will Windows 10 version 2004 be passwordless? The answer, yes. Uh, so the May 2020 update has indicated that this update will, and I have not installed the update yet, will have major changes in Windows 10. This was originally promised back in 2019, but the update has finally arrived this month. Um, the biggie in this is, of course, Windows Hello. 
So Hello is a biometric system that Windows introduced several years ago because I remember uh, I went to Spark in 2018. Microsoft asked me to come and interview people. It was really fun. Uh, hint, hint. You can ask. You can have me back anytime, Microsoft. Um, and uh, they had a big push going on for Microsoft Hello. Everybody that we interviewed wanted to talk about it and was redirecting into talking about Microsoft Hello, which is fine. Um, but Hello is a, is a full-scale uh, biometric system that uh, can require things like a camera. So one of the main features of it was that it was a camera, so face recognition kind of thing, uh, and that the camera atta attachment uh, may allow the movement of Windows 10 away from passwords. So, of course, this was one of the main objectives of this product. And if you could move into this passwordless world, all of your Microsoft stuff, which is if you've noticed over the last few years, Microsoft has been slowly tying everything together with that single sign-on. So the ability to get in there, and if you also recall, we had a story about uh, Microsoft Office uh, 3, uh, 365 having some problems uh, with people being able to compromise 365 accounts and even to, to compromise multi-factor with that. So theoretically, hello starts to move you beyond that uh, point. Uh, theoretically, anyway, this release is going to allow you. So I did see that it, it was it, you have to enable it, uh, but you could enable hello. And once you did that, the camera uh, is the first level of defense that's going to allow you to get into the Microsoft environment. And then they combine that with a number of other options that you could use to create multi-factor, which was a PIN number, uh, which, you know, really that's just a password. Uh, but you could also use other components. Uh, I'm, I, I have not tested this yet, so I don't know what all components are available, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it up pretty shortly and see what it looks like. But uh, so that I can, can I use my YubiKey? Do I need some other kind of device? What other things can I use to create a true multi-factor your passwordless environment. I, I kind of like the idea. We've been talking about how terrible passwords are and how much credential stuffing goes on. Uh, so I think this is something uh, of quite a bit of significance in the world. OpenSSH is going to deprecate the use of SHA-1. Uh, it currently, according to this report, costs around $50,000 to break a SHA-1 SSH authentication key. I don't know if that meant that that was the cost of cycles to break it or that's just you could pay somebody to do it. Uh, that apparently is a, a vast reduction in the cost. It may sound like a lot of money, uh, but when you start talking about high-profile attacks by nation states, by others who are trying to do corporate espionage and or whatever they're trying to do, it may not really be that large of a number at all. Uh, so the plan is to disable the, the SSH RSA algorithm component of, uh, of, that, uh, of OpenSSH. The United States House canceled a planned vote on the FISA bill, which was passed earlier this month by the Senate that reauthorized three controversial surveillance initiatives in the United States Freedom Act. Uh, this was part of, uh, of an act that was being reauthorized that essentially allows the government to conduct surveillance uh, of your web browser, of all sorts of things, without obtaining a warrant for you specifically. Uh, a lot of this kind of stuff and this kind of legislation was passed hurriedly after 9-11 uh, in the United States, but it has now sort of persisted and gotten renewed over time. Um, there were some amendments to this by the Senate, uh, that caused, and I, I'm not going to go into all the grim detail of this because if you're interested, you can read it. And if you're not, well, it doesn't really matter. But the bill ended up getting sent back to the House. 
Uh, apparently, uh, there was a lot of politics on both sides of this, and there were a lot of mixed messages from both sides. Uh, you know, and, and of course, in general, these kind of things are fairly unpopular with the general public, especially if you don't know very much about what's going on with it. Uh, but these sorts of rules have been unpopular. So at this point, that uh, bill that we reported on a couple of weeks ago has been effectively kind of canceled at this point. So uh, the vote was canceled, and now it's not sure exactly what the future of that will be. Um, a fairly interesting story then about gaming and how Tencent, uh, which is a Chinese company, uh, People's Republic of China, owns a lot of games that are out there in the world. So a lot of mobile games and other games are owned by Tencent, especially these little sort of uh, quickie games and little fun you know, types of games uh, are owned by Tencent or some subsidiary of Tencent. Uh, the article is really talking about how many steps there are between a game itself and the kernel and how it might be possible that the games contain obfuscated bytecode. Uh, which is being allowed to run in the kernel because that's just how the games run. So basically what they're saying is that a game may have fairly high level of permissions on your device. If that game uh, is allowed access to the kernel itself, it may actually be able to do all sorts of things that we're not clear about what, I mean, I mean you can imagine anything that can contain obfuscated bytecode can do just about anything. I mean, remote code execution and so forth. Um, apparently to avoid cheating and any of us who are around in online gaming when it first started back in like the late nineties know that cheating was rampant and maybe some of us did some cheating. Um, but basically, uh, when they had plain text sends, it caused a lot of problems. So these games say that in order to avoid cheating, they have to encrypt everything and, and which makes sense because that was some of the earliest cheats I saw or thought about. And this encrypted code is being downloaded live from the internet. Uh-huh. We have all heard that before. And if that encrypted code contained who knows what, it could literally run on a system with root privileges. So, ouch. So, you may want to, you know, review, as, especially for your corporate users, what sort of things people are being allowed to install on their mobile devices and who owns those things and how much data is getting pushed into those things after the fact. So, you allow somebody to install a game. Later, the game starts downloading additional encrypted code that contains obfuscated byte code, and boom, you get ransomware or you get something else. The story is really sort of alluding to the idea that maybe. Uh, there could be some, you know, far-reaching threat from this, like shutting everyone's phones down all at the same time, uh, you know, due to some kind of act of international, I don't know, nation-state action. In addition to hiding in the encrypted code, uh, Ragnar Locker ransomware has now been detected running as a, a virtual machine. So this was a sort of interesting report as well. This attack that was documented uh, basically ran an installer in Windows, it downloaded and installed a 122 meg package from the command and control server. And, and in the contents of this package were a virtual box hypervisor and a virtual disk image. Uh, the virtual disk image file had Windows XP on it. And this is basically used then as an attack platform, which is possibly running as trusted inside the system. So this is a very sophisticated kind of attack for ransomware and may well be a way to get around a lot of security 
if that uh, VirtualBox device is given enough privilege so that this attack platform can then set itself off. And since it's all being downloaded on, on a, a drive image, it wasn't as easy to detect the kind of code that was being downloaded. This is a really interesting uh, read, and we've been talking for a while now about all these modern frameworks and how they're adapting and changing and how difficult they are to, to manage. So this may be another step in the process of creating customized attack frameworks uh, as virtual machines, and of course, you know, you're going to put a slash after that and say containers, which could run on your local system resources and with your local privilege levels. So all of a sudden, we get all the way back around uh, to things running as root, whether that's on a Linux machine or a Windows machine, and it becomes an attack platform. Facebook executives shut down research that was focused on making Facebook less divisive. So in some studies that dated all the way back into like 2018, Facebook found that their algorithms seem to be exploiting the human brain's general attraction to divisiveness. We do seem to like that, don't we? Um, but they decided to shelve all the research and just leave all this in place. Um, why it wasn't clear why they did that. In the same light of social media issues, uh, Donald Trump, who is the president of the United States, if you didn't know that, uh, signed an executive order this week in an attempt to curtail the legal protections that shield social media companies from liability for content on their platform. Basically, what that means is that social media companies allow you to post things, and because you're posting them, it's not like a news service. So if a news agency reports something that is libelous or slanderous, uh, and you can look up the definitions of those two things if you don't know what that means, but uh, libelous, uh, basically you can sue them and say they, they said that I, you know, I was ugly and I'm not ugly, I'm like super, super sexy, and uh, you can file a lawsuit and maybe you win and maybe you don't. But social media uh, companies have not been held to that standard. Uh, so Donald Trump wrote an executive order, which is this method that uh, the president can apparently use to circumvent you know, laws and circumvent anything. And it, it basically resulted from the fact that Twitter put a fact-checking indication on uh, a uh, presidential tweet where he was advocating a conspiracy theory against a host on MSNBC. Uh, we won't get into politics. Um, Twitter just started putting fact-checking labels on content this week, and one of the people that got, uh, got hit by it right away was Mr. Trump, and he got a bit upset about that. Um, not all of us can write uh, sweeping executive orders at the drop of a hat, but he can apparently. It's not clear how this executive order can be enforced or if it is even legal, but Twitter maintained they were going to keep on putting fact-checking notices on content at this point. And guess what? This morning, so this very morning, Twitter placed a warning on uh, Mr. Trump's latest tweet uh, in which Twitter indicated that uh, this tweet violated its rules against glorifying violence. Um, the tweet, you can go look it up on any source if you want to see it. I did put a link to the story, which has all the links. I don't want to get into the politics of it, and there's a lot of controversy around all that. In a Texas case, RealPage sued uh, their insurer after RealPage was attacked with a spear phishing campaign, which allowed credential stuffing, which resulted in money transfers out of uh, RealPage's service, 
which allows renters and rentees to transfer funds and pay rent. The insurer, National Union Fire Insurance of Pittsburgh and Beasley Insurance, I don't know if that's two different companies or it's like all like some merger or something, but they basically claimed that they, uh, that since the attack resulted from a hack, they didn't have to pay because they were providing something they called a fidelity bond, uh, which ensures the behavior of employees, not uh, subject to outside action. If you read the story and what the company said, that wasn't what their policy seemed to say. Uh, they sued. It went to court. The company, uh, the insurance company moved for the case to be dismissed. But basically, um, the company said that their, they thought their policy covered losses resulting directly from um, an attack on the computer or fraudulent transfers from the computer. Complicated legal stuff. But the court let the case go forward, so it has not been resolved, so, so be careful. It just simply meant they allowed the lawsuit to proceed. So, but you may want to review your own coverage and make sure that you have covered what you think you have covered and what you don't have covered, and beware of marketing stuff that, that you know, basically plays out like that. Um, I mentioned this earlier, and Jason talked about this in the Security Weekly News on Tuesday, but apparently eBay is using a JavaScript to scan localhost uh, for 14 different ports on your machine. Uh, all those ports are known to be remote access tools like VNC and so forth, and there was the port 63,333, which uh, it's not clear what uh, why they're scanning that port, but they run a quick port scan to see if you have any of those tools in place. eBay gave some vague statement about protecting customers' privacy, and that's why they had to do it. Uh, they didn't really make clear exactly what it was, so it may be that there are botnets or other types of uh, VNC-type relays that are being used against eBay auctions in this manner. Uh, there's so many different ways people try to scam eBay auctions and drive the prices up and down and everything that it's really complicated to tell. Uh, there are some ways to block this mentioned in the article, and obviously you can block script execution, which if you can, if you can uh, and still use eBay, it's unclear what part of the user agreement allows them to do this, but they, uh, there probably is something there. So, you know, you might want to keep that in mind. And finally, I could not resist the story. Uh, so the 5G silliness that has been going on since earlier this year is still, is still going, and now it's gone to the full-on snake oil level. A USB stick that purports, and, and I'm quoting, to protect you from 5G uh, was dissected in this article. So this is really well worth reading. So a 339 uh, British pounds is what it costs, so that's around $400, uh, is called the 5G BioShield, and it has this fancy acrylic block filled with some sort of magic smoke, uh, and apparently it's just a USB drive with this fancy acrylic block filled with magic smoke uh, attached to it. Uh, it was apparently adopted by some very foolish people uh, at a couple of different towns, uh, and according to the device, so get this, it provides a nano-layer catalyzer which can be worn or placed near to a smartphone or any EMF or EMI emitting device. And through a process of quantum oscillation, it balances and reharmonizes the disturbing frequencies. Oh, yeah. So if you're thinking about buying something stupid like this, well, you know, I have a bridge down in Brooklyn in New York, and it's really lovely, and I can get you a hell of a deal on it. So give me a call at 1-800-782-5377.
uh, that, that spells out sucker. Um, please don't fall for this crap. Uh, you know, and that's the news wrap up for the week of 24 May 2020 in the time of plague and another week in the lost age. As things start to reopen, use some common sense, please. I'm Doug White from the RD Online Cybersecurity Program at Roger Williams University. We'll see you next week on the network that never shuts down, Security Weekly. Read the science and stay safe.